For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a teacher. I know I'd go from rags to riches. Welcome to What Do You Teach with Brian Elberg. Welcome to What Do You Teach, the show where I, Brian Elberg, a New York City public school teacher, sit down with some of the most progressive minds in education and talk to them about what happens when the most progressive ideas in education come face to face with actual students. One of those ideas is something called SEL or social emotional learning. If you ask 20 different people to define SEL, you are likely to get 20 different responses. So it's not that surprising that when you ask parents if they support SEL, their answers vary greatly depending on what they actually think they're supporting. That's why Adam Tyner and the rest of his team at the Fordham Institute set out to measure parental support for social emotional learning. Adam sat down to talk to me about what parents actually like about SEL, how teachers can go about implementing some of these ideas, whether they should do so implicitly or explicitly, and how a greater focus on SEL relates to how mental health also seems to be taking up a bigger and bigger role in our culture every day. Um, if you have enjoyed the podcast so far, feel free to follow me on a variety of social media platforms. I'm on TikTok now for some reason. All of that's just my name, Brian Elberg. And if you enjoy the show, uh, please reach out. I've gotten some nice notes, and they really make my day. So, uh, And I hope you enjoy this episode with Adam Tyner. All right, I'm very excited this week to be joined by the Associate Director of Research at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. His work has appeared and been cited in national and international media, such as The Economist, The New York Times, Forbes, and Education Week. Very happy to be joined by Adam Tyner. Adam, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um, so first of all, um, I want to talk about your paper on uh, social-emotional learning. And before we get started on that, as someone who struggles with naming things often, I got to compliment the name of your paper, How to Sell SEL, Parents and the Politics of Social-Emotional Learning. I mean, that's strong work right off the bat. That was a group effort. I can't take total credit for that. Well, you should, because it's excellent. So whoever did it really deserves a lot of credit. Um, so first, for people who may not have read it, can you just give us sort of the elevator pitch for this paper? Yeah, so we, uh, I work for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan education policy think tank in Washington, D.C. And uh, we felt like parents, there's been a lot of uh, work around social and emotional learning and opinions of different stakeholders. We didn't think that the parents' voice had really been part of the fray as much as maybe it should be. And so we partnered with YouGov, the international polling firm, to survey 2,000 parents of students who were in grades K through 12 about their opinions about social and emotional learning and about a range of related topics uh, that kind of overlap with that to some extent. And, uh, and so, yeah, we put out this report I guess it's been a week or two that it's been out now. Uh, it can be found if you Google the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, you can find it, or Thomas B. Fordham Institute and Social Emotional Learning. It's got its own website, so you can kind of scroll through and you don't have to download a PDF or anything. And uh, and we found a few things. Um, I mean, we can talk about the de the you know the details of the results uh, more through the conversation, but one of the main things that we found was that while there was broad support for the substance of social and emotional learning when we asked about specific things that, you know, should schools be involved in teaching your child to set goals and learn how to achieve them, stuff like that. There's really broad support for the substance of social and emotional learning. But 
the term itself is less popular and is more polarizing. There are uh, some parents who are turned off by the term social emotional learning. And so um, it could be that, you know, better messaging could be, uh, could be, you know, part of the part of the way to, to do social emotional learning better because it's important to get parents buy in because parents have a lot to do with social emotional learning. It's not like teaching algebra where it's probably mostly the teacher's responsibility. Parents are actually maybe more important than teachers when it comes to this stuff and learning this stuff. At least that's what the parents in our survey said. And I think it makes it's kind of common sense that it's important that parents and the community be involved. It's not just the work of schools. It's not maybe even mainly the work of schools. So the way we communicate with parents on this is really important. Absolutely. So what are some things that we can do to sell social emotional learning to parents? Maybe some name changes or stuff like that. Well, one thing that we asked about was we gave some titles of different programs that were sort of overlapping with social and emotional learning to some extent. Uh, obviously, social and emotional learning to its advocates is uh, oftentimes a, a narrow thing that has a research base and a set of aligned practices. But uh, to lay people, to parents, it's oftentimes um, it goes along with a lot of other ideas. And so we wanted to Kind what of are some test. of those ideas that it might that it goes along with? sort of like hippy dippy like we're gonna sit we're not gonna do any math today we're gonna sit in a circle and talk about how much we care for each other and trees and stuff like that <laughs> it it could have that connotation but it also could overlap with things like having good character for example right um you know being a diligent and an honest person who cooperates that could overlap with a lot of traditional ideas about education that maybe don't go with the sort of narrow idea that the social and emotional learning advocates normally the, the kind of phrase, phraseology that they use. And so I think it overlaps with a lot of stuff. And I think it's a little controversial where the boundaries really lie. Um, we cast a, a broad net with this because we wanted to make sure that if parents were thinking about it one way that we were able to capture that as well. But so when we, when we looked at these different kind of program names and they were kind of context free, it was like, do, would you want your kid enrolled in a program called, and then we had different things like character education grit and growth mindset. Um, we had life skills, social and emotional learning. We had a list of these and I think there were 12. And yeah. of those 12, the term social emotional learning itself came in second to last among those, among those terms. So uh, and what was the, last? Was that soft skills? It was. Yeah. yeah. Soft skills was the one that, that parents liked the least. Social and emotional learning was second to last. I would add social, emotional, and academic learning did much better. Right. By far, the the one that parents liked the best was life skills, which is actually a term that a lot of people in education hate. And it, so it that's a lot of eye rolls. Yeah, we're that's like, exactly my next question. Is I was reading as I was reading the paper today, and I was like, social and emotional learning falls near the bottom, right? Life skills falls near the top, but to me, life skills is a totally other ballgame, right? Life skills to me sounds like opening a bank account and how to do your taxes and all mm -hmm. these things, which I can see sort of a very um, old school type of education being like, we never learned these things that are so important, these life skills. And maybe we should be doing stuff like that, but that's not at all what I associate with social and emotional. What I associate with that and what we mean in education is 
you know, the ability to sort of self-regulate and remove yourself from a situation that's tough, show grit in a situation you can persevere through. So what are some ways that we can sort of make that idea clear to parents while we're saying, this is what we want to do. We don't want to do how to do your taxes. We also don't want to do sit in a circle and hold hands. How can we make that idea clear? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, when we asked about these different things, it, you're right. The substance is not the same. That's why I started out saying they were like maybe right. overlapping with social and emotional learning, not, you know, they obviously aren't all exactly the same thing. Um, so it could be that just substantively parents care more about learning, you know, kids learning how to you know, do practical things. And that practical stuff really popped up a lot. We were parents really were interested in the in the in the things that they could see value in and we had parents kind of rate different types of skills and subjects and um and at the top it was all these things that were were pretty kind of obvious i mean they were like core academic things like history and science and math and then stuff like career and technical education and then like reasoning and problem solving was number one actually we call that a social emotional skill of course that's 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 a great example yeah, but I mean, it obviously isn't something that has been, you know, dreamt up in the last 20 years since people have been talking about social emotional learning either. Right. It's something that you know, has been around a long time. So I think one of the things that is important in selling SEL is to emphasize the practical stuff and emphasize what it means in practice. If it's not sitting around holding hands and it's not something that is, is if it's something more substantive and it most of the time is, to talk about those concrete things and to talk about what kinds of things you're doing in the, in the classroom to try to build concrete skills that are useful for these reasons, as opposed to the more abstract stuff, which is often the way that people talk about SEL. Right. So that's kind of that idea of using them in practice was where I wanted to go next, because to me, thinking about these skills like grit and empathy or optimism and perseverance, really important skills. Is there a clear divide between whether or not parents want us teaching those things explicitly, like pausing math and saying, today we're going to talk about perseverance or empathy versus I would think those skills may be sort of osmos through being a math teacher who shows empathy and who shows perseverance or who maybe praises a student for persevering on a really tough project or showing empathy to a classmate. So which of those two paths are more popular with parents? It's a great question, Brian. And I think we should put this in the context of remembering that when we think about students as I think you're a high school math teacher, um, I've had different groups of students that I worked with in the past, but I'm not a teacher right now. So sometimes we, you know, if you're a parent and your kid is eight years old, you think of your kid, or if you're a teacher and you teach this grade, you think of your kids that you teach. But the truth is that there's probably a lot of variation in how we should teach SEL, how we should think about SEL, depending on what types of students that we're working with, whether they're you know, six-year-olds or 16-year-olds is going to make a big difference, what types of SEL competencies we're talking about, because there are some uh, SEL competencies that may be, you know, you may be able to convey those through an explicit instruction, and here you learn how to do this, and you know, and then and then practice that and you do it explicitly and it works. And there may be other things like we had a, a parent who commented in the free responses that confident self-confidence is something that you learn by doing, not talking about doing. I think that's what he said. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah but, that makes total sense. 
And, and so something like self-confidence can't really be taught, I don't think, in a direct, explicit way. It kind of has to be earned in an implicit way like you were talking about. Of course, there's also other aspects of the student's experience that may affect how we would want to approach SEL. Uh, students who are from different kinds of backgrounds, maybe some of them are getting a lot more of this at home. Some of them are getting a lot less of it at home. That could make a difference. Or maybe just a student's personality could be a difference too. So I think that there's probably a, we need to make sure we keep that context in mind. But I think, you know, we asked about, we asked parents about whether they favored more, we called it direct versus indirect, but it, I think it's kind of the same as what you were saying with implicit and explicit, and whether they thought that SEL was best learned directly or indirectly, and we gave them some examples, um, directly like, you know, a, a lesson on a particular trait, or, you know, indirectly like learning um, about it, you know, learning through literature, the struggles that a character goes through and then talking those out and then right. how do they deal with these challenges and something like that, which is SEL, it's a very traditional part of education, but what we've always been doing even before we called it education. And the, it probably won't surprise your listeners that the vast majority of parents see a mix of direct and indirect as being the, the, the way forward. But we did see a division on a partisan basis. It's one of the things that we found overall in the report was that the best predictor for divergence of parent opinions about SEL was their partisanship. Republicans right. are a little more skeptical about SEL, definitely didn't like the name very much. Even social, emotional, and academic learning, which I said earlier was, you know, doing better than social, emotional learning was still underwater with Republicans. So the Republicans also in, on this question had a, a, a kind of a different opinion than, than Democrats, where Democrats were much more likely to favor direct approaches with SEL. Republicans were much more likely to say that they preferred indirect approaches. But like I said, most people of both parties said a mix. So I don't want to overstate that. But yeah. Um, but you have me nervous. Yeah, you have me nervous that I've secretly been a Republican this whole time. And I didn't. <laughs> well, it's it's definitely yeah. Most people see it as being a mix. Yeah. But again, I think it's going to depend on what competency you're talking about. For totally. for some things, I think it's it's going to be direct. For others, it's going to be indirect. I don't know what um you know maybe maybe you've had some experience in this with this in your classroom. Yeah, like, I was part of a master's program several years ago where we wanted where part of our assignment was to do an explicit lesson on a social emotional value, and I did mine on optimism, um, and I framed it in a mathematical context as we're going to. If you're an optimistic person, it essentially means you see mistakes as not sort of. Um, you see mistakes is not the end, having a growth mindset, learning from your mistakes. I remember we had a sign in our class that said something like, optimism means you take a step back and you don't see it as a lack of progress. You see it as the first step of a cha-cha. So it's sort of like that idea. Like <laughs> I took a step back and it's just, we're, we're rolling with it. So that seems to, that seems to speak more to my sensibilities coming from a high school math context. And coming from that high school context again, right? Where I talked to John Hattie on the show and he said, People don't care. Students don't notice what you say, but they notice what you measure, basically. Mm. So is it possible to grade these things or should we even be thinking in that way? So we asked about that on the survey, and I would say that there were a lot of parents who were skeptical about it. We actually I'm not even sure that we ended up talking about this too much in the report, because the truth is that 
I think this is really more of a, this is a place where I think I trust experts and people who are in the classroom a little more than parents, because parents may not have thought through the many ways, just like what you said, John Hattie said that, you know, the parents or the students are paying attention to what you measure. And uh, the people who who have direct stakes in this probably may see this a little more clearly. And I think there's a lot of uh, Angela Duckworth has a pretty um, had, had a pretty famous op-ed in the New York Times a couple years ago where she was saying, please don't try, you know, she wrote this book about grit and right. it was a bestseller and it was a big deal. And 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 then she was like, but please do not re-engineer accountability systems around this thing that I've been studying and you all have been talking about because of my book, because that is going to lead to a lot of problems. And I think it's actually a really good point that we should be very cautious about trying to measure these things in any kind of an accountability system or anything like that. Now, that said, there are a lot of like charter school networks and, and there's some in-class uh, supplementary uh, kind of classroom management systems and stuff that um, some schools are using that do measure aspects of students you know, kind of non-cognitive stuff. Are they paying attention and, and are they behaving? And I, I think there's a charter network that has a, a report card that kind of goes along with the main report card, which grades you on math and science and all this stuff, but then gr- grades you on grit and zest and all these things that maybe to outsiders sound a little silly, but right. are an attempt to try to say, you know, this student is putting in effort on these things, or maybe needs to work on their optimistic, you know, attitude or, or, or whatever on some, on some other stuff. So I don't know if that's, that could be a a kind of a middle path. I think holding people accountable, like teachers or something would be a terrible idea, but having, you know, some feedback for parents and, and students could be valuable as long as those terms aren't so abstract like grit and zest might be a little (laughs) unclear what the difference between those are or exactly what that means to a lot of parents. It is to me, and this is the field I work in. So uh, as as long as that's not lost on them, I think it it could be valuable feedback. Because to me, there's, well, there's a couple of things here. The first is that um, I think that this is such a catch 22 when we talk about these, I'll call them either soft skills or SEL, which is on the one hand, a lot, a lot of the data shows, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but on the one hand, a lot of the data does show that these are actually the most important things that are going to help you, whether it's in college or career or anything else. On the other hand, they're so subjective that when you start to inject personal bias, cultural bias, and every other kind of bias, nobody is really equipped to adequately assess how empathetic another person really is. Mm-hmm. So that's the first problem with it. The second problem is to go back to you what that parent said about self-confidence is that it would be so easy for any of us to take a test on empathy and ACEs. And yet it is so much harder to actually act in a way that is empathetic throughout the day. So what can we do about either of those two major issues? And what do parents say about dealing with them? I think they're big challenges. And I think that um, you talk about the long-term effects of those things. And there's been a a long, I think a little bit more, long-standing literature about non-cognitive skills and the important importance of that stuff that is is not just measured in test scores and stuff like that uh, especially for people's long-term success um it's it's definitely true that you know co- cooperation learning to stick with things 
These are these are important things. I think they've been a part of education forever. I think the hope is that if they really are important, then there's no reason to believe that doing you know, spending a school spending time cultivating those isn't going to pay off with test scores to some extent. Right. Because, okay, that makes total sense. Yeah. Because I mean, it's not like if 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 learning how to stick with something is going to be valuable to you in, in life. It's also going to be valuable to get your homework done. And if right. you get more of your homework done, then you're probably going to learn more about that subject. And then it's probably going to show up at the end of the year. So um, I don't know that you, we definitely, we have to exactly kind of separate those out in the way that they've been pitted against each other a lot of the time. Yeah. I guess it's in the same way that we think of, it could be thought of in the same way that we think of gym now, right. Where like, we don't necessarily think of like, at least most grading systems that I've heard of. You don't say to a kid, hey, if you run a six minute mile, you're going to get an A, but if you run a nine minute mile, you're going to get a B. But we certainly are aware that if you're someone who's physically active and engaging in physical education, you're more likely to be in a better mindset, which is going to help you do well in the classroom, right? So all of those things are so interconnected that maybe that's sort of a path forward as well, possibly to think of SEL in the same way we think of gym. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's also a value in having the context that we're talking about non-cognitive and cognitive a little bit, right. and that non-cognitive stuff, the parents overwhelmingly see that as primarily the responsibility of the family. It's right. not to say that teachers and schools don't matter and we work in education. So we have to make sure that even if they don't matter that much, they matter a little bit and we should do as much as we can with that lever that we have. <laughs> so right. Uh, that's not a, a reason to kind of give up on any of this. We got to do the best we can, but we also need to realize that part of the reason it matters is because it's not just something that you learn in school. It's something that you have to have some support from elsewhere normally, not always, maybe, maybe some people can get it from school if they're missing it somewhere else, but that may be part of the reason why we find it frustrating to try to work on this stuff is because we can only do so much in right. the schools and we can only task teachers with doing so much and getting the algebra teacher to teach algebra really well is hard enough <laughs> making right. them teach them how to organize their whole life uh, teach the students how to you know do all of these you know get all of these character traits and stuff that you know we we have uh, youth ministers and, you know, aunts and uncles and parents and, and, you know, boys and girls club leaders and, and everything else who are trying to do that stuff and coaches who are trying to teach those things too. to put it all on the algebra teacher. In addition, there's a reason I think why parents are skeptical of that and are worried. Some parents are particularly worried that this stuff could end up crowding out the core academic function of schools. Because Absolutely. the teacher's first role has to be the algebra, probably, even if we all agree that learning discipline is more important than learning, you know, uh, how to, you know, do yeah. the quadratic you know, function or whatever. Yeah. It's more important. Everything it's, is more, everything as an algebra teacher, everything is more important than the quadratic formula. Nothing in the entire world matters less. Uh, <laughs> I, I hate teaching it. And then I guess my, my next question is, a lot of teachers do feel like this at times, teachers that I've spoken to, where it's like, a school will say, hey, this is our new initiative, social emotional learning, we're gonna do it. And then they basically say, ready teachers, go do it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know what to do. I, I have no idea. I'm not trained to do this. I don't know how to do it. So do you have any tips for teachers out there who are like, I know that these skills are important, but I'm not equipped to do them. I studied the Pythagorean theorem. I didn't study, you know, Freud. So I don't, I don't know. 
I, I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss. Yeah. I think it's really hard because like, you know, what I was saying about putting a lot on teachers, right. it, you know, we're asking them to do all these different things. I think we shouldn't forget that teachers can be doing, we're talking about explicit, implicit earlier. Teachers can be doing a lot of this stuff by just doing their jobs well right. it, and, and knowing their subject really well and knowing their students, you know, as well as they can and being a good role model, modeling good behavior, modeling, you know, civil behavior, helping their students to, you know, just encouraging them and, and doing the things that they would normally do. That is SEL. That is a lot of SEL is doing that stuff. And I, there's a whole industry behind it now. And so I guess I'm not a believer that there, we have to make this big dichotomy between them or that, you know, it's all a big trade-off. I think that you can do both, but I think we also shouldn't forget that teachers who are doing a good job at teaching their subject and being modeling empathy for their students and encouraging their students, the, the kinds of things that most teachers do anyway, as part of their job, they're doing SEL already. Right. And that they don't necessarily need to take a bunch of classes on SEL in order to learn that. And in fact, that's the kind of thing that could distract from their core function and their core academic function of schools. Because I'm a strong believer that the things that make teachers the best is knowing their subject really well and then being good in the classroom and knowing how to manage it. And, you know, that may come from observing other classrooms or having your master teachers observe you and give you feedback. And there's probably lots of ways uh, that teachers can learn that stuff. But if we're doing endless PD sessions about a new fad every year, rather than doing that, you know, kind of workaday stuff, it, it really could, you know, manifest as the distraction from the, the core academic mission. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I feel like it's one of the people I quote the most on the show is uh, Denzel Washington's character. And remember the types just forget when he's talking about fundamentals and just split veer works like Novocaine, you know, give it time. It always works. And that's, I feel like sort of the fundamentals of education do encapsulate a lot of those other ideas. And so much of it seems to be just like, hey, be a good person, like be kind to students be accepting of students. Don't be, don't be, you know, a jerk to put it, you know, PG. Don't be, just be kind to them. And, and, those, and they will sort of pick up those things from you. They'll pick up those things from wanting to work hard in your class. They'll pick up those things from wanting to help a friend on a project, right? A group project is a model. And what's not an, what's not a lesson in empathy, if not a group project. I mean, it's. Yeah. I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic of group projects, but, but, you know, I, I understand, I understand your point. And I mean, we talk about, you know, the importance of getting, getting parents involved in this, the, you know, the, the parents see this as, you know, you know, there is skepticism among parents that yeah. some of this stuff will distract from, you know, it is a fad or that it's being talked about in a way that, it doesn't connect with them. Right. And so, you know, you're talking about kindness and this stuff, this stuff isn't new and it, it wasn't dreamed up by, you know, scientists or in people in education schools 20 years ago, people have known a lot of this stuff for a long time. And so there's probably some communities that feel a little talked down to when you use all of this kind of wonky ivory tower uh, terminology to describe something that is kind of been a part of education since there was a, a thing called education. I mean, it's, it maybe even before, there was written words. There were probably a lot of right. these 
ideas. So I think sometimes that just kind of, it, it hits people as sounding like a, either a fad or as something that is maybe not going to have staying power, where if you just talk to them in a little more normal language, I know life skills maybe isn't quite the right thing to convey the exact things that we're talking about. So that may not always be the right way to talk about it, but um, there, it may depend on the community that you're talking to, but some people may really respond better if they're talked to about this stuff in a more plain language. Sure. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the next part that I wasn't even thinking we'd get to, but I think this makes a lot of sense to me now is, are there any particular academic and class policies that teacher can, teachers can put in place that can help boost these ideas? And what I mean is, as an example, like, I feel like some teachers want to do the right thing. They want to do right by kids. And then they will have, in my opinion, some like draconian lateness policy where they like lock the door if a kid's late and they think I am a very empathetic kind of person, but you were late. So now you don't get to come into class. Today. That seems to mm. be a step back in that direction. So are there any particular class policies that teachers can put in place that boost SEL, but aren't maybe explicit? Well, let me just, I guess, challenge your your way of thinking about this a little okay. bit, because I, I it's true. When I've talked to some experts on SEL and you ask them about something like that kind of class policy or about discipline policy in general, and they'll just say that's not SEL. They'll just say that's that's not. No, if, if it has to do with punishment or if it has to do with um you know, you know, discipline policy, these kinds of things. That's not SEL. SEL. When you say that's stuff. not, when you say that's not SEL, do you mean it is working against teaching social emotional learning, or do you mean it's irrelevant to it? I, I'm not sure, but I, <laughs> I'll tell you that there are people who I've talked to about this when I was trying to talk about this in a little broader context, because that's the way I think about it. Yeah. And that's we, you know, when we were working on this project, we want to make sure we involved a lot of different voices. And I talked to some SEL experts. And when I brought up something like discipline policy, they'd just be like, that's not SEL. So we shouldn't be talking about that. And I, I guess, you know, your thing about the, you know, locking the door. I mean, I don't know whether that's effective or not. I don't, I, I can't say it is. I, my guess is that it depends on the context, but I don't agree that having boundaries or consequences or having punishment or those kinds of things that those do not constitute a part of social and emotional learning, because that is part of how people learn to regulate themselves is by right. facing consequences. And it may not always be the best way to do it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there are times when it may be the best way to do it and that we may be able to, in the classroom, do things like hold students accountable for their behavior, hold school students accountable for their learning. And that may be a part of SEL. It may not be, it's not the whole of SEL. You know, there's explicit things like teaching them how to plan. There's impl other implicit things. But another implicit thing is just making that connection between work and reward. And like, if I, you know, if I work on my homework more, I will do better on the test making, helping to make that connection and helping to see that hard work pays off and that they can do things they didn't, you know, know they could do. And part of that has to come. I mean, I think that uh, some part of that should be, especially with older students, like the ones you work with, should be facing some, yeah, sometimes you're going to run into something you messed up and you're going to have to fix that or you're going to have to resolve it some other way. And so empathy, learn that isn't contrary to learning empathy. I don't right. think. 
I guess so. What you're saying makes sense. I think there's an example of like, oh, you didn't do this project, right? So now you need to come after school or we need to set up another time for you to do this project. That to me seems like holding students accountable. And that's of course sure. a valuable skill that students need to learn of like, oh, when I don't do the project, now I don't get to, now I don't have as much free time because I need to right. make up the project on my own time. I guess my question is more about like, I feel like sometimes we put punishments on students that are, that do not match whatever their transgression was. And then we act like offended that they're upset that they got this punishment. Like, yes, uh, you know, they handed in a test a day late or they handed in an essay a day late because something terrible happened in their life or something right. didn't. And we say, oh, now you failed. It's a zero. And then they yeah. cry or they get upset and they scream. And it's like, well, you're not showing much grit now. It's like, well, that's because you did something insane. If you mm -hmm. skipped a day of, if it, as an adult, if we skip a day of work, there's a, a small consequence, but it is not the equivalent of a student getting a zero on an assignment. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that you could screw this up in a lot of different ways. <laughs> and I'm sure that being, you know, especially if you're not doing it in a rules-based way, you're doing it, you know, arbitrarily, uh, or, or yeah, there's definitely a lot of ways that you can do this, that you're teaching kids the wrong, the wrong lessons, no doubt. But there's also been a big trend towards just getting rid of any consequences for students. I mean, the, the thing you're describing I'm sure it happens all the time and I'm, there's, you know, millions of teachers and I'm sure there's bad ones and there, you know, there's no doubt. Yeah. I'm sure there's ones who are arbitrary and unfair to their students, no question, but there's also a lot of policies where schools and districts and they're, they're saying, well, you can never give a student a zero, even if they don't ever do anything, you have to give them some credit because of whatever because it's right. going to harm their grade too much or whatever and so th there's been a lot of movement towards removing consequences and and showing empathy in a way that i think teaches students to game the system and teaches them a bunch of at least potentially not i don't yeah. want to say it always does that because it mean you know but at least potentially it teaches students social and emotional lessons about gaming bureaucracies rather than about you know do your work and you know show up and and there will be good consequences for you so i don't know i i think it can it can go either way you could screw this up in in different ways yeah i think that where i'm coming from is i think that a lot of what people are doing right now we're teaching them to game bureaucracies. So it's like, you're already participating in a bureaucracy. Why not make it one that's at least kinder to you? Well, you should make up. it one where I agree when we're stuck with a bureaucratic system, but um, you should make it one where the incentives are aligned to learning, I think. Right, <laughs> so right, okay. I think to me, like, it, it, yeah, sure. It should be kinder, but it should also, to some extent, prepare people for, you know, the, as they get older, they should be able to face more consequences like you do in the real world. Right. And, and also your incentives should be towards learning more rather than towards just, uh, you know, um, making up the best excuse or, or whatever it is so that you can, you know, everyone has to be empathetic to you if you come up with a good enough excuse or, or whatever, you know, whatever. Um, let's see, can I push you a little more on this specific point that we didn't wrap up? Sure. Um, so I guess I feel like I hear this idea of like the real world. This is an interesting point, right? Because I hear this idea about the real world with students all the time, right? And to me, I think that high school, high school is really one of the last times that you don't get to make your own real world. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, 
I'm someone who has a ton of energy, right? I didn't, I don't like to sit down for a long period of time. When I think I like to get up and walk around in high school, yeah. that was not allowed. And I yeah. remember being told in the real world, you're going to need to sit down all day mm. and work at a desk. And now guess what? I'm a teacher. So I never sit down. Right. So it's like, I was able to make my own real world after that. I feel like we often SEL issues are often framed as like in the real world, you can't turn things in late. Mm. You need to sit down all day, but really like I was late with something recently. I was late to send someone a check and then they were a little upset, but then they got the check a couple of days late and whatever. Yeah. It was fine. So like, I feel like we, we often talk about SEL and the quote unquote real world as if it is like this unforgiving place. That's exactly like high school. When in reality, it's the exact opposite. Not the exact yeah, opposite. No, I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know the exact opposite, but no, I, I agree. And I think that I I'm fully in favor of, especially high schoolers and students get older, giving them more freedom and also holding them more accountable for their, for their actions. So I, I think we should give them more options. We should let them spend their free time in more, you know, give them more and more leeway as, as we can. And, and that means not, you know, tying them up too much with only academic classes that are uh, maybe not that interesting to them. They, they need to do a core, you know, course load probably, but, you know, right. let them run around and, and, you know, work on robotics teams or whatever that, whatever they want entrepreneurship or whatever they want to apply themselves in. And so I'm, I think a lot of high schools do actually give some latitude within some spaces. I think we could do a lot more on that, but I also think that at the same time, um, as students get older, uh, they should be more, more of the burden should be shifted from the teacher to the student in terms of, you know, learning is not about transmitting information, but you got to actually do your work and then you'll learn more of this stuff. And I think uh, as students get older, they need to be held more accountable for those things. So maybe it's a slim set of things they need to be held accountable for in terms of learning, but we need to be rigorous about that and not treat them like, you know, seven-year-olds that, you know, maybe we say, well, you know, they didn't learn that much, but maybe they just had a bad teacher or something. Right. Like once you're 16 or 17, that responsibility ought to be shifting more in your direction. So I, yes, I totally makes, agree. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think we're kind of stuck with this bureaucratic, you know, system that we have in, in a lot of ways, and we have to just kind of try to make the best of it. And so I, I get that, you know, that makes people want to, you know, cut people slack. And I, I, I totally get that. And I think teacher, good teachers make those value judgments. They're not anything that I can lecture them about at all. Um, but I, I do think that as students get older, we need to expect more of them, but also give them more choices because yeah. that is more like the real world. I agree. Um, that makes, uh, that makes total sense. I just have one more question and then we can uh, wrap up. I feel like mental health is playing an ever bigger role in our world and dialogue and zeitgeist and whatever else we're going to call it. What's the connection between mental health and social emotional learning? Because mental health, I think, is often framed as something that is static, as in, I can't get better. I can't do this because, you know, I have these, this, this is how my brain works. But then also, I think that on the other hand, we view things as being totally not static, totally malleable. We can make you more gritty. We can make you persevere. We can make you get out of bed on those days when you don't feel like it. Because if you work on those things, you can get better at them. So how does mental health fit into this whole social emotional learning conversation? I mean, it's a really big question and it's, I don't think there's any easy answer because there's a lot of kids who do go through a lot of trauma and who either live in families or communities or, you know, 
maybe they live in a good family and a good community, but something happens and they, it's, it's really hard for them. Or even people who don't have trauma per se, just have a lot of stressors or have, you know, it, it's tough growing up. Being a kid is not easy. Having a bunch of people expecting stuff of you is not easy. Now, I think there's a lot of evidence that social media is extremely stressful on some students, especially on girls, but and they're uh, teachers sometimes. I'm sure that's true too. Right. Um, I mean, there's some really troubling statistics about, you know, self-harm and, and other things that seem to be connected to some of that stuff. So it's like, you can't take that context away. That's the, these kids are dealing with that stuff. Um, you know, at the same time, we can't expect teachers who are trying to get you to learn algebra to right. also be your therapist and every other thing. I mean, like we can only expect so much of teachers as well. At the same time, we have some budget constraint somewhere around how much we can spend. We're already spending quite a lot. A lot of times we're hiring a lot of non-teaching staff into schools. We have more and more non-teaching staff that makes it hard to pay teachers better it makes it hard then when you don't pay teachers well to recruit quality teachers so there's a lot of interconnected issues there that make it very difficult but i mean i i think that you know the answer is we have to have especially in communities where there's a lot of mental health challenges we we, we need to think about that as being a, a part of of the school's mission to address how it fits in with, you know, social and emotional learning, I think that's a also a, um, a difficult thing to answer because they're clearly connected. And I think what you said is is exactly right. That on some level, some people are going to need treatment, and it's actually a kind of a medical or therapeutic treatment. Other people may need pep talks or the kinds of things that social and emotional learning or explicit social and emotional learning could help them get through. There's probably some kids who face problems that need a class on some of this stuff. And whether that's wound up with life skills and other kinds of stuff or not, um, I think there's probably some students who could, who could benefit from that. It's, these are all very difficult to answer. And they also depend on the context and the way that they're implemented. Because I've heard people say that when there is a freestanding social and emotional learning class, it sometimes has stigma attached to it, that it's for students who have certain right. needs and that's code word for X, Y, or Z. And so um, it's actually, it's not a simple thing to address. And I think teachers and educators are, more broadly are going to have to you know, continue to work through this stuff. I think the one thing that I, I kind of took away from some of this is that uh, we have some of these tools already and we need to not think we need to reinvent the wheel every time because like kindness and empathy and stick to are not some new thing that teachers don't know anything about just because they haven't learned the latest lingo. And so we should probably not, you know, we should probably trust our instincts a little bit on, on some of this stuff and not feel like we have to, you know, relearn it all and do a bunch of professional development in order to understand how to help students build some of these skills. Right. And that makes, um, that, that all makes total sense. Uh, is there any other question or any other topic we should have gotten into that we, uh, that we didn't cover? Well, I don't know. The report is long. It's got a lot of different sections and you know, yeah. we've got five key findings and four policy recommendations on all this stuff. So I would encourage your listeners who are interested in the report to Google the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, check out a report on 
parents' views of social and emotional learning. And um, you know, and I don't I'll, know there's a, yeah. I'll link the article right in when I when I send out the podcast. So it'll be right in the description yeah. and I'll put it on the Instagram as well. Yeah, check it out. We've got our own podcast. We've got a blog. We put out you know reports on a monthly or every other month basis. So we cover a lot of stuff in education policy. And and so I think there's probably a lot of resources there, but um, but no, I mean, I think we, you know, we touched on a lot of the important findings of the report. And if there's more that readers or your listeners are interested in, they can all find it online. Great. Well, um, Adam Tyner, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure.